0: Hey, y'all. Good morning from Berkeley, California. I'm Bernie. I'm Nicole. And you're listening to Woke, Woke Docs, a podcast about the lives of women of color in medicine who are woke to their own unique experiences, viewpoints, and struggles in medical education, research, and practice.
1: All views expressed are those of the person speaking, not their employer. In this episode, you're about to hear from the amazing Dr. Monica Hahn an assistant clinical professor at the UCSF Department of Family and Community Medicine. She's a family physician, HIV specialist, clinical director of the Pacific AIDS Education and Training Center. And did we mention, she's an amazing salsa dancer and does in her free time. Dr. Han has continued to be an amazing
0: mentor to us here at the Joint Medical Program and Prime Program at UCSF. And we are so grateful to talk to her and learn more about her journey. We're going to start.
1: Let's yeah. do this okay Monica so thank you for joining
2: us yes um, thank you for having me I really feel honored to be part of this we are so
0: <laughs> glad to have you as a mentor as a teacher as an advisor for prime we yeah we're so glad to have you in the space especially for our first episode yeah this
1: is your
2: first oh my god yes
0: so
1: you're going along the ride with us
2: awesome good like luck like okay it.
1: Okay, so if you could pick three words to describe yourself, what would you pick
2: and why? Okay, so one would be radical because Mm. of political reasons and also because I like to think I am radical, also just a radical person. (laughs) Um, And uh, another one would be positive because Mm. even though there's a lot of crazy crap going on right now with the current administration we have and just every day you open the news and there's something worse um i feel like through that we have hope and um and i like to remain positive um and know that we're gonna be able to overcome this and the third one would be loving um yeah i feel like love is a really important part of my life and just is part of what makes us human and um, yeah i think those like three words kind of like balanced out for me just being the human that I am, oh. that's <laughs> awesome. really deep. I yeah, <laughs> I feel
0: like the three words I would describe are like <laughs> nice <laughs> chill. <laughs> 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 I'm curious when you pick those three words, do they always describe you at this point in your life, or have they always been resonant with you you know throughout your whole life?
2: Thanks, that's a really great question. I was actually thinking about that. Um, there's times in my life where I was more of one than the other like they're like when you're you got like teenage angst i was definitely had radical you know political ideology then but i might not have been as positive mm-hmm. <laughs> um i mm-hmm. definitely had like you know a teenage grunge like you know negativity um era where um yeah it was a lot about like just being angry at everything um and annoyed at how you know just injustices in the world and what, what I could just, I felt like I had very little power of being able to do anything about it. Um, and so I was just like less hopeful than, than before, but one of my words is hopeful. And I feel like maybe as I get a little bit more chilled out, as I get older, there's been more hopefulness, but I think the loving part has always been true. Mm-hmm. I've always been mm-hmm. just a loving person, um, just for everybody and, and my friend, like my family and my chosen family circles. Um, and just for mentees and mentors, that's just something that I've always had. That's super yeah. beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> that's really awesome.
0: Cool. Um, in terms of, you were talking a little bit about um, how Radical has always been part of your journey. Um, how has that fit into you know your journey of medicine, And I guess, kind of starting from there? How has your journey in medicine been from the beginning to where you are
2: today? Sure. Um, so yeah, it it wasn't always obvious that those things could go together. I actually um, started off, I'd say I started off college um, as I, I was majoring in biology and ethnic studies and like really ethnic studies is where it was at. Like I was really a student activist. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> shout out to ethnic <laughs> studies and critical race theory people. So, so yeah, that was like my path, um, and you know, I was a student activist. I was very involved in, um, you know, in actually s- socialist groups um, and campaign to end the death penalty um, and uh, LGBT rights groups. Um, and that was what I did. I skipped my biology classes. I got a really bad grade in my Ochem class, um, and I w- ended up getting arrested on campus a few times for doing sit-ins. And to the point where they basically gave me a letter to me and my parents saying that they would. Um, expel me if I got arrested one more time on campus. What so wow. I had to be really, really good for the last uh, year and a half of my school there. Uh, this is at UC Berkeley, where you know I was just so happy to be there in this amazing place where there was a history of activism, and um, you know I would, I was, I, I had started to be a, um, a sex educator and community advocate at um, Asian Health Services. That was my internship job at the time, and that fit really well with what I was doing, um, but I just didn't. I didn't before I did that work I really didn't see a connection between medicine and um, and community activism and social justice so I actually never really considered medicine as a path for me um, I didn't know any doctors that were also activists or advocates um, and I actually didn't have any idea what doctors did all day honestly except for like the one time my parents brought me to a doctor and like I had, a, I had A cold or something Um, but we didn't really go to the doctor very much so it was like a big mystery um but so so yeah so i started off that way and then i just really luckily got um got to become a uh an intern at asian health services youth program um where i learned about the history of the community health movements um, and how you know, that was a real big part of, um, in the 60s, just community activism and talking about how health is a human right and it's not just a privilege. Um, and I realized there are doctors that are activists, there are health providers um, and community health advocates that, that really fight for health. Um, and I was very interested in sexual health, um, reproductive justice, um, and HIV prevention and treatment at the time. Um, and I'm really happy to say that I'm still interested in that now. Um, but it really helped me to see that, uh, that all those things are not just medical issues. They're actually really social issues and social justice issues. Um, and so I realized that I could be an ethnic studies scholar, um, and I could be learning about public health and medicine, and I could meld it. Um, but what I really realized that, that that could actually be melded was when I got to join the PRIME program, um, which was a, a brand-new program at the time uh, at UCSF which was for, it was just basically just made for people like me who were people who had um, core principles and um, core values in social justice, but wanted to also become health providers, um, and that, that program really gave me the tools to be able to do that, along with all my mentors in the, in the community health um, system, um, especially at Asian Health Services. Wow, Mm -hmm. that is, that's a
0: lot. That is, so Monica, your goals, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In terms of bringing in so many core values of, like, social justice, um, you may not see that on the everyday, you know what I mean? So I guess in your words, what value do you see that bringing into, you know, your everyday clinical practice with patients, but also kind of just also as a role model for a lot of people who, again, you said, You didn't see people like yourself. Um, What do you think that perspective really brings to your practice and also the medical institution as a whole?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think just in my identity as a woman of color in particular in medicine, um, when I am practicing medicine, I'm seeing patients in my clinic, like I'm just seeing everything through a lens of social justice. I mean, this might also be because I'm – a former ethnic studies scholar, and like this is just the way I see the world. But um, people don't just come to my clinic to be, like, for instance, treated for HIV with medications, and I'm just managing their medications. It's like, you know, I'm very luckily, HIV is now a treatable chronic illness, unlike, not unlike diabetes or high blood pressure, where we have really highly effective antiretroviral therapy, and if people are able to stay adherent to their medication, they're Able to live a long, healthy life. So it's not the medication that's the problem in 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 this case. It's really it's you know, racism, homophobia, transphobia, systemic oppression, and you know, basically a stigma that is affecting people's ability. That's the reason why we have new HIV infections. That's the why the reason why we have certain populations disproportionately affected by HIV. So like I don't I guess. My perspective is different in that when I'm seeing patients in clinic, I hopefully, hopefully this is happening more and more. But I'm seeing a bigger picture of I'm not just going to see this person that I'm going to give medicine to in a 15 minute visit. It just it goes beyond that, and it it just like takes into account a bigger context of um, like how we got to this point um, and why certain conditions or health issues get perpetuated. It's it's not like we're seeing health issues in a in a vacuum. It's all in the context of people's communities. Um, and then I really feel like it's important to know like the context, the contextual history of just the medicine that we're practicing, and what are aspects of patriarchy that we are perpetuating in our practice, or like what are the what are like the ways that we just allow um, certain systems of oppression to continue. When we're practicing medicine and we're not questioning the way it's being practiced, Mm -hmm. so I think those are like things that that you know students are questioning more, which Mm -hmm. is why I really appreciate being um, more connected to to students. And you know, I see students as my mentors because I feel like sometimes when you're in the system too long, you you like the things that you noticed that were like really messed up when you were a student. You like because that's just the way things are. You kind of as you practice more, you end up somehow just um, not seeing it as much. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, so why I really appreciate you guys bringing up these kind of issues and th- asking these questions because it's important to ask these questions. I we appreciate that. Not really t- big tangent. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I was going to say, you should write a text that was <laughs> great. <Yeah. laughs> I was like, that was great. Yeah. It makes us feel
0: more legit, not only yeah. with these microphones, but <laughs> <laughs>
1: speaking real truth out here. Yeah. So how were you able to stay connected to all of the things you studied in ethnic studies and all of your values that you were exhibiting during college after getting into medical school during residency and your clerkships? How did you find a way to continue being active with that?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think what really helped me was that I stayed in a community like part of my choice of where to go to medical school was to stay in a community where I knew I would have supports outside of my school um, to really help me stay true to my core values and who were who would know me well and know how I sustain myself and that is that my family is really really strong um, and they know what I'm passionate about and know how to support me and my partner was amazing throughout. Um, but also, I have a lot of friends who are not in medicine, and I think it's really important to actually have that, I think, um, to not lose touch with reality. Um, I al- Also, um, really, like I mentioned before, the prime urban underserved program at UCSF, I was in the very first um, class for that. Um, and so w- we were in our infant- infancy at that point and just learning how, to, um, how that program was going to look. Um, but those students that were my co-students just we were like each other's therapy like back then we didn't have like the language of social justice like it was not cool to have social justice like be your core value like Mm. we didn't talk about like implicit bias and like cultural humility and like and like white privilege and we if you talked about that like in the regular you know classroom or something you would be like oh my gosh you're way too radical and like it was like radical was a bad word like it wasn't I I mean we didn't I Mm. I only felt comfortable talking about that stuff with my prime classmates if I was talking about it in a medical context it Mm. was like almost like not something that you would talk about um yeah It was interesting so I'm really happy to see how far along it's come since then Mm -hmm. Um, but back then like yeah we you were just kind of trying to survive med school um, and you were just trying to have your yeah you you had I was so happy to have the support of my of my other students and you know they are still people that I call on now in my career and Mm -hmm. you know we still talk about these things to this day and uh, yeah that program really helps sustain us and keep us like uh, keep our eyes on on like the goal of what we were always interested in, and I'm really happy and lucky. I think to be one of the people that feels like I went in with a passion for women's health, um, you know, reproductive justice, and and HIV, and I feel like I was able to maintain that um, that passion throughout and be able to practice that now. Um, but I know like you know you guys are in it right now, but through med school, it's just like a really socially transformative process and is really difficult (laughs) as well um and you have different strains like student loans and other things and so sometimes when you what you go in thinking that you're gonna do when you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on the first day of med school you might you know when you're (laughs) by the time you graduate you (laughs) might be (laughs) like oh my god oh we've already felt it
0: (laughs) (laughs) just want to backtrack because i'm really curious so when when did it change in terms of like being able to have these concepts of like white privilege, social justice. Not that it seems like the norm now, but it seems like more accepted, people are more willing to talk about it. When did you witness that transition or if there's an event or maybe year that you saw people being more open about talking that
2: type of stuff? Yeah, it's a really good question because it's been gradual, but I feel like especially I'd say like especially more recently, I I think it's been hard for me to tell and even now I realize how hard it is for me to tell what what the pulse is in like a big region, like or or even in like the entire country. Hmm. Because I'm so privileged to be able to live somewhere like you know, the San Francisco the Bay, Bay, Area, Bay Area and I get to work with colleagues who primarily are working at San Francisco General Hospital and like work in the county system and they uh, most of them think very alike to me and so I'm like lucky in that like I don't feel like repercussions and like I am comfortable most of the time speaking out about like if if something is not right and there's some example of systemic oppression going on like I'm going to call it out but I you know only A little bit more like I've been working in that system so it's been hard to see the gradual change over time but I think it's been gradual and I do but I do think that like maybe in the last couple years especially with um, well I guess especially under the new administration like 2016 like I feel like people have have become more like polarized maybe in a way or but but also like energized in a way that's like people have been less apologetic about being very progressive Mm -hmm. in a way that like a lot of us have already been like I think everyone here has already been that way but like Mm -hmm. I think people have realized like what the repercussions are when you like don't step up and like speak out and you're not an advocate or you're not an ally like actively Mm -hmm. Um, if you're passive like this is what happens somebody like this gets elected so I think that was like both a horrible horrible thing when when Trump was elected but it was also like a wake-up call for a lot of people that that kind of jolted them out of complacency Um, And and then, like, the Me Too movement and things like that, I feel like that's been more recent. Mm -hmm. Um, But, again, it's hard for me to tell, because, like, a lot of us have been singing the same old song for, like, ten years. (laughs) And, like, I don't know how many more people are listening now than, like, ignored me before. But, like, it's... um, So, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to judge how it's changed. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 So how would you, I guess,
1: what do you see your role in this change... Um I guess now and in the future like what do you what do you hope to change in the current medical
2: system Yeah yeah I mean I think we all share a similar goal at least like-minded folks like us here who people who might listen to this podcast um and I mean really what it comes down to is dismantling systemic injustice in in the places where I feel like I I interact in my environments in my community Um, in my every community I'm a part of Um, and like I feel lucky that I get to be a part of training the next generation of health providers Um, because like I was saying when I was going to medical school it was about ten years ago right It, it was not easy to talk about these things in a safe it was hard to find a safe space to talk about these issues and I think like one thing that I would love to change is now that I'm in a slightly higher position even though you always feel like you're the bun of the totem pole wherever you're you go to the next level but I mean I feel like now I like one of my biggest goals is to make it like make it just um safe and and like absolutely necessary to talk about when there are instances of oppression and unconscious bias and just, like, acknowledge the racist history of medicine or inherent sexism in something you do in medicine. Um, and then just for us to really empower each other to be able to change the system together. Because right now, I mean... Yeah, even now, sometimes like you'll find you're like in a in a meeting that where you're supposed to be talking about some kind of diversity issue or something, and like it's like you and like one other like woman of color in the room, and like there's a bunch of blah 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 going on, and like you and her are like giving each other a side eye mm-hmm. like in the room, that's it, and it's like <laughs> 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 that part, yeah, right, right, and mm-hmm. it's like we shouldn't be like just two people giving each other a side eye in the room and rolling our eyes. We should be like we should be like running it. And then you know whoever doesn't agree with us can be giving us side eye, and we can kick them out or something. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I I feel like I'd like to make it more of a of a safe space and an environment that is inclusive and where we're really represented in more of um more of because now it's like now it's like sexy to talk about like differences matter and like you know um to to talk <laughs> about unconscious bias and things like that, and so it's like okay, but let's make sure we're, like, actually talking about it and not just giving a lip <laughs> service, and, like, let's right. make sure we're, like, really delving into deep stuff and not talking about, like, whatever cultural competency or whatever that means. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I would say it's really heartwarming to talk to you, Monica, because I feel like me and Nicole especially – you know, ending our first year as medical students. First of all, we here, we made it. We're yeah. still, <laughs> we're still intact. Yeah. We're doing this podcast. We're doing Freedom School, um, but you know, it's been hard. It's been hard to have to be in the classroom, to learn, you know, concepts about biological racial difference, which goes, you know, goes against all aspects of race being a social construct and that type of conversation is not to be had among a lot of medical students and like scientists because it, like people have just like have not had the courage to really challenge that mm-hmm. um, and these are still very ingrained in how we kind of just see people yeah. of different cultures and backgrounds as being biologically inferior and that's really hard especially as women of color because you're like oh wow that relates to myself and my history and my people and my community so it's really awesome to have someone whose first adjective is radical to describe themselves yeah. still you know have those types of values even as a practicing physician because I think for a lot of us as women of color we're like afraid to lose that in this system mm-hmm. and it's like super hard to kind of have to code switch between going back to your community being in this classroom being in the lab being in clinic um and it's like exhausting
2: yeah absolutely wow i'm, I'm sh- sorry i was making faces while you were talking because <laughs> are they still t- trying to teach like race-based medicine like they like still shit? i'm sorry but like <laughs> <laughs> i you just gave me a huge like traumatic flashback of one of the first times i was in one of my f- in my first year of medical school somebody came to talk about like mm. r- like like genetic and like race-based like differences in certain genes that would make them more likely to have asthma or something and i like had i got in a huge argument with this um presenter and it was so interesting because i i came from an ethnic studies background race Mm -hmm. is a social construct Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what does that have to do with like medicine like shouldn't we be trying to study like in asthma for instance like what what kind of like aces or like what kind of environmental mm. factors in that region or something would would affect somebody to have worse asthma outcomes like that seems that seemed like it made a lot more sense to me and I just like left it feeling really unresolved and feeling like gosh I hope I get an answer at some point I hope they don't teach this later like in 10 years mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah, that was the exact
0: same, same th- lesson <gasps> yeah it's still it happening was. yeah okay our first one too yeah, yeah. wow that, that does not start you on
2: a good foot
1: yeah so we started the freedom school <laughs> I know so that <laughs> is what much,
2: that gives me so much hope you guys like that's actually like uh, the freedom school is such a wonderful idea and it's something that I wish we had like if I had that during medical school I think about how much better of of a of an experience me and many of my colleagues would have had I mean essentially Prime was our freedom school we like we made it that um but yeah just so much more support and and I love that you include so many people in the community and it's not like just Sometimes when you have like only medical people together it yeah. turns into kind of yeah. like a complainy fest. <laughs> exactly. <like> yeah. <laughs> when you said
0: that we need friends outside the medical
1: school, I was like noted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> going to
1: make yeah. sure that's going to be emphasized.
2: Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, yeah, so I think I mean also building off of that is like we have people that are in ethnic studies and doing Mm -hmm. all of this amazing work that doesn't get to medicine Mm -hmm. so we have like dorothy roberts screaming at the top of her lungs Mm -hmm. saying you know race-based medicine shouldn't exist and these are things that are happening because of it and medicine just completely ignoring it and so i think do you have any ways where you think that medicine can somehow incorporate these things into maybe a curriculum or Somewhere where we can actually be collaborating, creating bridges between different things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely,
2: I'm so glad that you asked that. So uh, that is a huge issue that has come up in our residency program as well. Mm. Is that, um, you know, I, I was a I was a graduate of the residency program where I'm a faculty now, and so I'm particularly interested in this. Where um, it, this is the family medicine um, residency program at UCSF. So some residents have been. Noting that like hey, we've been taught like interesting things from especially like preceptors who are maybe like of a different generation and maybe aren't like as you know up-to-date on um, On on the way that are like really like the values of our department um, And they've been teaching like really race-based medicine type of um, like anecdotes um, And it's like not helpful for our clinical learning and so we we they luckily have recently understood that diversity and inclusion is really important in our, in, in UCSF in total, but also in our department in particular, I'd say. And so they've created um, a, a, a family medicine department um, uh, diversity committee, which I, I'm lucky to be on, um, and we're actually going to discuss this exact issue and how we can figure out solutions to it. And one of the big um, things that is that has been happening in our department is um, we have a couple former residents who are now faculty who have created an anti-oppression curriculum it's it's an anti-oppression and allyship curriculum and they actually required um, our entire department to go through it and they're actually going through and doing every single department and all the um, department of public health um, clinics they're they're doing this curriculum but it I mean and that's really great but like we need more than just like a curriculum that happens once and then people might Mm -hmm. forget about it like it Mm -hmm. has to be like it has to be like attitude changes and, like, behavior changes, and, um, you know, part of, uh, they're, they're being trained in trauma-informed care as well, and that's part of, I, I think, the culture change will happen when, like, it does start first with, like, everyone has to at least have, like, been, been aware of it by going to, like, a one workshop, but it has to be continued, and these discussions have to be continued, um, but, but yeah, I, I'd, I'd love, I'd be totally open to ideas, too, about how you guys think that this this discussion, like these voices, like like Dorothy Roberts, like have to be amplified in medicine because it's not separate. Like we need right now in in this day and age, especially with everything going on politically, like we can't be siloed. Like medicines over here and mm-hmm. like critical race theories over there. Like we have right. to like be listening to each other and borrowing from each other um, and doing interdisciplinary work. Because because yeah, because doctors don't know how to necessarily in in our particular training don't have the skill of like facilitating difficult discussions about race for instance or like not everybody knows about you know transgender terminology and and you know advocacy for for that particular group i mean it's Mm -hmm. we're going to have to be working together on all this yeah
0: yeah i'm wondering whether like even if we like invert the way that medical education curriculum is like structured like for example the first two years of medical education you learn about Kind of all of the basic sciences you know what i mean and that already puts people into like yes medicine is this objective mindset of which like cannot be kind of challenged but really it's a very subjective kind of practice where it's like every single patient encounter has its own power dynamics has its own individualized way of interacting with that patient but we are not taught that from the get-go that's like something you just kind of add like sprinkle on and like residency and Mm. third and fourth year whereas like if that was the foundation that could actually be super helpful
2: right i agree a hundred percent i mean i if i had it my way i would like require everybody to get an MPH and it would have <laughs> to be infused with critical race theory like before you right. are allowed just to Just give to us financial school. aid Yeah, I mean just you know yeah, yeah yeah with financial with a full ride scholarship right. of course. Free public I mean, education. Yeah yeah yeah. Like, if people. I were queen of the world I would I would require this as part of medical education. I mean yeah I, I got my MPH before coming to med school which mm. might have made it even more frustrating for me to enter med school with mm. that like you know you start with anatomy and like you know, cell biology, which is like, when do I ever use my knowledge of cell biology in medicine? <laughs> um, I mean, I use it, but I use it less than I use the calculus they forced me to take before. So sc- true. Before you know, so that like already, yeah, I could talk about that for a long time too. But that's like very <laughs> exclusive of, of people. So, um, yeah, I I agree. Completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that goes back... I think we were having a conversation about this. Me and Nicole were having a conversation in terms of, like, increasing representation for, um, you know, women of color, underrepresented um, minorities. Is like the preclinical... Uh, not preclinical. The pre-med education mm-hmm. and requirements are just absolutely absurd yeah. in yeah. terms of, like, the calculus, the OCHEM. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know any of that right now. And it's absolutely crazy. And it is a huge, like like a feeder for a lot of people who don't come from families that have this type of knowledge to just like not believe that they
2: can do it. Yeah, absolutely. I agree a hundred thousand percent. There's so many ways that um, there's ways that we're weeding out so many people um, and making, making medical school and medical education and becoming a doctor unobtainable But like in a disproportionate way to people who can't afford to take like a really expensive like MCAT preparation course or Mm -hmm. like people who can't, um, you know, take take time to do like a post back to do all the classes they need to do. Um, And then like how much it it costs to like submit a secondary application for all these medical schools in residency or or yeah in, in med school, you have to pay for your own interview flights and everything. So like you're already being exclusionary. It's not a level playing field to begin with. And and anyway, and that doesn't even talk about like the systemic reasons beforehand with education system. Like we have to be starting in like even before like kindergarten to, to like mm-hmm, fix yeah. things. And like it's it's already mm-hmm. like too downstream to fix it in the in the medical um, school mm-hmm. um, level. But mm-hmm. but we still should we still should fix it at every level. But I, and I know one thing they're trying to do is to increase um, the number of medical schools. So they're working on one in like Merced. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 san joaquin valley is actually just starting one we're gonna have a prime program there actually is like a newest um oh. sister program of prime so the i know they're trying but it's like definitely not happening fast enough mm. yeah. yeah got you yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: and so you have so many ac- you have so many things going on for you you have your family you have so many professional accolades um you have a badass journey what would you consider as your greatest accomplishment
2: the, that's really hard sorry No, 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 no <laughs> i know thanks for prepping so I, I thought about it and i think really maintaining my strong bond with family and friends who are not in medicine actually while going through medical training might r- that's really boring but that like maintaining that like really human contact and connection with people I love was actually the strongest, biggest accomplishment because it's like I was saying before, like medical school is such a tumultuous time and it's a really transformation, it's it's a transformation process that takes you through really dark places. It takes you to um, experience vicarious trauma over and over again, um, if not like straight up direct trauma to you or it triggers past trauma to, to many people. Um, and just having other people, a lot of times other, your support colleagues who are in it with you, they're going through the same thing. And so a lot of times you're like not emotionally there to be even like taking care of each other. Um, Everyone has their own stuff to deal with. And so for, for me, just making it through that, but maintaining my like relationship with my partner, my family and my friends that were not in medicine, even though they weren't like, they didn't really know what was happening every day when I was on the wards or, When I was on nights um, just like the fact that those relationships stayed intact is actually a big accomplishment and the fact that I I I was really proud that I was able to maintain my connection with my the various communities that I was a part of that aren't medical community so my capoeira community my dance community were really important to me um and so I probably the actually the most Um, accomplishment I'm most proud of is during my third year of residency, I became um what's called a graduada in in Capoeira. So in in my Capoeira school, there's like several levels. It's kind of like Taekwondo like belt colors. Mm -hmm. So when you get a when you get a blue belt in, or it's called a cord in Capoeira. Um, which is a Brazilian martial art um, you' you're considered a graduata which is like a graduate student level and it means you can teach and it means like you have to have gone to Brazil to to train in order to get this and you have to have trained really hard for a long time and gone up through the ranks and I didn't think that I'd be able to like accomplish anything aside from just survive um, during med school and residency and so I was really um, was really honored to get that um, and my mestra who um, is actually like a really um, significant community leader uh, in the mission. She um, she came from Brazil and started this Capoeira school in the mission, um, and and now she's she actually like offers free classes to kids and things like that. Um, it's really amazing. She's a really great mentor to me, and so that that meant a lot to me. So it's I try not to like have my accomplishments be like things that are there's a lot of competition in like academic medicine (laughs) and so there's a lot of like people when they think of their biggest accomplishment people feel like oh like I didn't get any award or like I didn't Mm. like publish anything and like that's like I totally try to measure my accomplishments on like how happy was I to do this or that like or how yeah how good were the relationships I kept and I think that's like I try to set it up that way because if you're always comparing yourself to other people about, like, academic accomplishments or, like, otherwise, I feel like it's y- – people are always going to make themselves just down on themselves, and, like, that's not what we – need. as women of color especially, like, we need to be focusing on positive things and what are going to make us feel stronger. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so yeah but – that was a long, rambly way of no. like. Wait, we got questions, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. You, wa-
1: yes. you, you want to go?
0: I was like, so funny story. I was meeting with another, was it another mentor, um, Elizabeth Boy Smith. and she was like, oh my gosh. Monica Han is your advisor. you got to ask her about, she's like the salsa dancing queen. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) what? I was like, I had no idea. Like, I was just getting boba with Monica. Wait, So please tell us more about how you got into capoeira and dancing.
2: That's super incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you for even asking about that. Because I think sometimes we, like, as professional women, we're like, it's all about, like, what? like academic accolades and like awards oh, no. you got we turn out yeah. but no, it's like f- <laughs> but it's like it's like if you don't enjoy your life right. and do things that are fun that exactly. like feed your soul like dance or do martial mm. arts like basically you're gonna have a miserable life and like who cares if you got all these awards you mm-hmm. like didn't have any fun so right. so yeah so <laughs> i um one of my favorite places in the world well two my two favorite places in the world are brazil and cuba I've traveled there with my partner, um, and like we go as much as we can. I've traveled to Brazil with my Capoeira um, school, Um, so yeah, I trained. I trained Capoeira, which is it's an amazing like martial art that's combined with like gymnastics and with dance. um, That was actually practiced uh, in. I actually learned about it through ethnic studies because I was learning about art forms as a form of resistance. And it was actually uh, an art form that was uh, made by slaves in Brazil um, when um, they were trying to train to be able to uh, rebel against their masters. But so they pretended they were dancing, but they were actually like training to, to be able to um, to fight off their oppressors. Okay. Um, and so that's where it came from. So this is in the northern Brazil in the Bahia region is where it, it started. Um, and uh, and I just like loved that idea. So when I went to Brazil after college, um, I actually like saw people practicing capoeira in the streets. And if you ever watch it, you have to YouTube if you've never seen it. It's the most amazing thing. It's mm-hmm. like acrobatics and people like doing cartwheels and like almost kicking someone's head, but then they duck just in time. Um, and it's amazing. So I did that, and um, I I trained that for since since basically med school till till through residency and until recently. And then I got an injury, so I haven't been training as much lately. Um, but, uh, and then dancing has always been something that I love. Um, and so I, I go to, I have friends in Cuba that we visit and um, there there's professional um, dance like workshops that happen that I always go to. Um, and I'm in a like a salsa or a Cuban salsa, Afro-Cuban like dance group that we perform sometimes. Um, yeah, and that's how I have my fun and that's how I like just keep my passion alive for other things because i think if it was just about work only keeping my passion alive i have plenty of passion for my work it's like there's nothing i'm more passionate about but um yeah i don't know that i'd be able to sustain that unless i had other means of like getting my energy and spending my energy i guess
0: Mm. yeah Yeah. (laughs) monica hahn everyone yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) for real
2: Goals. Goals. yeah
1: um So I think a lot of this also goes at the beginning. You said this really beautiful thing about like how students sometimes can be your main source of knowledge. And I think like all of these, like these hobbies that you have outside also speak to that. And I think that that's just so, so beautiful. And I guess, you know, how do you cultivate that? How how could you, you know, get other people to think that way? And, you know,
2: yeah, I don't. that's a really good question i mean i think it's all about like we just have to people who understand power and privilege and have a have a goal of trying to dismantle that um should be in places of power more often because Mm -hmm. i think what happens when people are in power that are power hungry and like want everything to be top down and like don't don't agree with like the way we we agree on things, where things should be grassroots and things should be bottom up, um, I feel like if more people believed that, that were in leadership positions, we would have a lot more of like an understanding that like everybody's a learner and everyone's a teacher, and we'd we'd be learning from each other. So, so yeah, I'm a huge fan of Paulo Freire's um, uh, method of, or his his pedagogy of the oppressed. So you you know, you're not just like, learners aren't just like empty vessels that get filled with knowledge from a teacher. It's like, you should be sitting in a classroom, it should be a circle, we should all be learning from each other. And that's what like photo voice and like Mm -hmm. other methodologies of um, community-based participatory research are based on. Um, And I feel like I really, that's why I really appreciated the JMP actually, because that was a way that we learned. um, Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, noted that the person in the room that Supposedly had the most knowledge because they were they are a practicing doctor or they're they're the professor They actually just sit there and they don't say anything and they intervene as a facilitator if needed But they're not actually the ones talking and I always thought that was so beautiful and I really appreciated that and that's actually modeled after um, a Paolo Freire um, Model Um, Mm -hmm. so so yeah, I think that if more people in power in places of leadership like agreed with that notion that you know Power and privilege should be equally shared um, then it it would be easier more people would yeah act that way and I Mm -hmm. wish I wish they would Mm -hmm. yeah
0: Mm -hmm. Um, in your role as a mentor teacher and also a learner do you have a specific maybe humbling experience that
2: you've had in your life yeah uh, definitely I'd say probably the most humbling experience just overall as a, as a, pr- there's one I have, I, I can think of one that's like specific to work and then I can think of one that just like being in life Cool. and I think that in life it's just becoming a parent, just yeah, becoming a mom has been like the most humbling experience overall and <laughs> it makes me realize how it makes me appreciate so much how much my mom went through um, and appreciating how much she's helping me now to be able to reach some semblance of balance in my life and reach, my career goals because I can't believe like how hard it is for for me to be able to like continue working full time and um, continue being the best parent at that that I can be and and that I want to be and having time in relationship with my husband and like other and, and just being a normal human being um, while taking care of a kid is really really difficult and I just and and like even just now me and my colleagues who have recently have kids realize like how many policies are super not friendly to working moms in in the workplace even though it's gotten so much better. So it makes me realize like how much my mom and like all of our our parents went through um, in a time when it was even less family friendly. Um, And like yeah my mom told me like when she had me she got to take like two days off of work and then she was like working like two days later and like i don't even know how do you even do that Mm -hmm. yeah and like i complained that like you know we only like recently got like a pumping room in one of our clinics to be able to like pump between um between um patients and we only have like one patient taken off our schedule from our normal schedule to be able to pump but that's better than like what it was before which was basically nothing and you could get fired for for you know going on maternity leave but um we still have so much work to do and there's mm-hmm. so much more to go there so that's definitely a humbling experience. Also, being like, being a doctor, I'm a family doctor, so I should know a lot about peds, and I do. <laughs> but like, when it's your kid and like something is going on, it's like, what is like, there, none of my knowledge like helped me. <laughs> like, why I don't know That's why they're hilarious. crying. They didn't teach me in med school. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know why it's so hard to breastfeed. Like, I tell all my patients that. So like, huh. I feel like less of a phony now. But it's a very humbling experience. Like, I knew. I wasn't I I tried to have a lot of humility in that before having the baby that I was like I know I've never had a child so whenever I see a patient and it's like it's a peds visit or like it's a visit about breastfeeding like I will I will fully admit that like I am I haven't had a baby yet I don't know you know but I will give you as much of the medical you know knowledge I have and and like you know uh, but now I can I can have also the like mom knowledge too so mm-hmm. I feel a little bit less of a phony mm-hmm. but it is very humbling experience to actually go through something than to be on the other side of it as as the doctor like just counseling about the medical issues <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, yeah and then I and then oh yeah a humbling experience at work so so yeah wh- I'd say one of the one, Challenge that was such a blessing to me and where I learned so much was um, taking care of um, a, a trans a transgender um, male patient um, in my prenatal clinic, um, and I, I just you know I am such a strong advocate for transgender um, transgender rights and just transgender health and improving our um, provider biases around it and and. I, I did rotations in medical school around it. Um, you know, I've, I've taken the time to do a lot of extra training around it and just other extra workshops. Um, I really wanted to bring a workshop to you guys in Prime about it. Um, but when you know, I, I basically taking care of my first transmasculine pregnant patient and just seeing through his eyes, like how incredibly like heteronormative our medical system is and how much our system like really reinforces a gender binary and everything, um, was really eye-opening and, um, just, just like really motivated me to be able to do a lot of advocacy in the hospital for making that experience better for him and for any other transgender patient that we have. Um, we actually, from the experience I had, um, taking care of him, we actually ended up, um. Training all of like the ultrasound techs on how to use um, gender-neutral language and how to talk about um, the fetus and and things that they were seeing in the ultrasound for it to not always be like a script That's like, oh, do you want to know if it's a boy or a girl or like, Mm -hmm. you know, can and using um, Names for body parts that transgender folks might not Actually, right, um, you know identify with Um, so so that was that was a really big um learning experience for me that was really positive um and was definitely humbling experience because it's really um yeah it's it's like there when when you have a certain experience and that's not yours um it's you you want to be the best ally you can be um and and it's not it's not easy when when you can't draw on your own experience Mm -hmm. um yeah
1: So um, I think throughout this whole conversation, you've kind of talked about the different challenges you faced at different parts of your journey. Um, Is there any particular challenge or, you know, I guess advice that you have for women of color pursuing medicine?
2: So much. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, really. you can
0: still become a doctor even if you've been arrested yes, yeah <laughs> yes
2: try to get it expunged from your record because it can come back to bite you in the <laughs> ass later when you're trying to <laughs> apply for your license uh yeah i had to talk to my program director about that when that came up um but luckily it was expunged um so yeah it's it's uh for for me and like for my when thinking back hopefully it's better now but thinking back to my cohort of women of color that we're, we're still quite close in my prime program and we still talk um about this although we've blocked out some of it cuz some of it was very traumatic but uh <laughs> we we really just like you have to be there to support each other so definitely be there to support each other um and to validate each other's experiences mm. because mm. there's a lot of like invalidation or like dismissal that yep. happens about your experiences or there's a lot of like um there's a lot of oh gosh what is the word my brain is not tone policing that mm-hmm. was the word i was yeah. looking for mm-hmm. um and so you know when sometimes it's good to like check in with your trusted uh, other colleagues that that you really trust about like when is it the right time and what is the best manner in which to bring up something and like blow the whistle on something that's come up because without like to make it so that it's the least likely to be dismissed by somebody Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, and like, when is it, when is it appropriate to like escalate something to like a higher level if it's being dismissed Um, and how to like recognize tone policing and, like gaslighting honestly when Mm -hmm. when like something really happened and like your perspective is being is being like basically dismissed um you that that's when you really need like your people to come Mm -hmm. help you um and help validate your experience um and say things like me too in in those instances Mm -hmm. um i think that's one of the biggest things is like it's hard to go just alone Mm-hmm. And if, if you can do that, and that is that was a defense mechanism that I will be completely honest, a lot of us utilized at that time because there really wasn't a better recourse. Something messed up happened, and like we we just had to just keep going and just be like, you know what, like this is messed up, and we're when we have a place of power later, we can do something about it. But like right now, we just need to like graduate and get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. And that's like I won't say that that's like a wrong thing to do because sometimes that's mm-hmm. just like you just need to get through it um but i'm hoping that now like there's enough like support amongst each other and enough um where we've we've hopefully evolved a bit where that's like y- we should feel more comfortable bringing those things up mm-hmm. um yeah I guess yeah that's i'm sure there's other areas i'll have to think <laughs> oh, that was beautiful <laughs> find yeah. your tribe y'all find your tribe yeah. um i guess one of our last
0: questions um, I know you had talked about this, but maybe just to reiterate for our audience because you talked about it so beautifully, but how do you think the inclusion of more women of color in medicine will change the field?
2: Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, exactly. I, w- I was saying before, like, we will change the culture together. It's like, it, it takes, it's, culture shift doesn't happen overnight and just the more representation we have of women of color in places of leadership will will make it so that it, it just just when we're represented policies don't get put in place that are completely against our interests and so um i think y- having more inclusion is going to change the field for future um for future women of color and just future for everyone i mean i think when people come into a space into leadership where they're aware of of um just issues of power and privilege and have a goal for um dismantling systemic oppression that's going to trickle down to all other parts Um, and um, yeah I think it'll just it'll it'll improve health equity for sure because a lot of times just from our personal experiences and and um, we we just are more aware of these issues in general Um, and and I hope that uh, yeah I'm, I'm very hopeful knowing that like you know, your generation of providers is doing things like starting Freedom School. Like, that's super inspiring to me. And um, I know that that is going to definitely change the culture. Um, and, yeah, little by little, it will definitely do it. Or quickly. <laughs> I'm hoping <laughs> quickly. But um, I've definitely seen the transition, like, just in my, my own, like, going through training and my career, for sure.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for being yeah. with us, yeah. Monica. We are so appreciative of you and all the work you do and everything you embody. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I mean, you. Yeah. y'all can hear she's a badass, and
1: <laughs> yeah, um, thank this you so, so much. inspiring. Yes, Thanks. like I think, especially after first year of medical school, yes. it's kind of difficult to feel like there is hope. You know that we can change, and I think that mm-hmm. seeing your perspective and how much you know you've seen it change since then and um just like the really amazing things you do is is so so inspiring yeah yeah Yeah.
0: and you kind of exude this enthusiasm that I hope all of our listeners are hearing so thank you so much
2: thank you so much you guys I really appreciate you um I'm really humbled and like uh, yeah I just feel so lucky that you even think of me as like somebody that would have something interesting to say so i'm yeah really really appreciative (laughs) and you guys inspire me honestly really so much (laughs) oh thank you thanks (laughs) Thanks. (laughs)